Hey, Christ community, I am so grateful to be with you and to be a part of your spiritual journey and all that God is doing in your life and in our church family. Uh, speaking of our church family, last weekend was amazing. We had a compassion weekend where we talked about how we as a church can be for children who are experiencing global poverty by being a child sponsor. For just $38 a month, you can help provide for a real child in need, things like food, and clean water, educational opportunities, as well as an opportunity to learn about Jesus. There is a community just outside of Lima, Peru, known as Colique. Within this area, there are over 300 children who are needing sponsors. And so last week, I cast a vision for us as a church to adopt this area that no other church has adopted and to be and to do all we can to be for those children in need in that community. And I'm excited to announce that last weekend we had 209 Colique children sponsored by people from this church, which is awesome. Way to go, Christ community. Now, it's not too late to be a, a sponsor for a child in Colique. You can text the number on the screen or you can click on the link or just go to our newly designed app and you can find all the information there and ways to connect with and sponsor a child. Let's get closer to this goal of making sure every identified child in need in Colique, Peru will be in a sponsoring relationship with someone here at Christ Community. So thank you for being such an amazing church. Well, today we are starting a new teaching series that honestly has been on my heart for the past several months as I've observed what's been going on in our nation since last March, really with COVID and then with the elevated racial tension and then the elections. I mean, it feels to me, it feels to me that Christians are being confronted with a very important question. How are we to live in the midst of a culture like this? In the midst of a culture with lots of tension and anger and division, in the midst of a culture where things we value are perhaps not valued by people in places of power? How do we live in the midst of a post-Christian culture where Christian ideas are becoming less and less relevant to many people? These are really important questions. And I feel like right now, Christians are answering them in ways that are all over the map, you know, in terms of how we're to respond, how we're to live. I'm having conversations with people all the time about this. Some are like, we got to stand up and fight. And others are like, I think the end is near. Let's just pray for Jesus to come. So how are we to live as Christ followers in the midst of a culture like ours? Now, it seems to me that the best way to answer that question would be to look at the one we are claiming to follow, the one to whom we have given our allegiance. That would be Jesus. And you see, Jesus had a lot to say about this very question. He, he, he had a lot to say about how he wants his followers to live. Now, you may be surprised to hear me say that in the midst of all of Jesus' teaching and ministry, there is actually one particular word that summarizes, one word summarizes how Jesus wants us to live. In the book of Matthew alone, this word is mentioned almost 50 times. So what is this word? It's not love or salvation or healing, even though all of those are important. The, the one word that summarizes Jesus' perspective on how we are to live is the word kingdom, kingdom. Jesus' entire ministry is focused 
on this idea of kingdom, of living in the reality of the kingdom of God. So for instance, look with me at Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is just beginning his public ministry, and this is what Matthew tells us. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The core of Jesus' life and teaching is centered upon this idea of the kingdom. He is continually calling his followers to be people of the kingdom. Now here, Jesus refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. In other places, he calls it the kingdom of God. They are both referring to the same thing. So what is it? What exactly is this kingdom that Jesus calls us to embrace? That's a really important question. In fact, if, if we don't answer, if we don't understand the nature of this kingdom that was at the core of Jesus' ministry, we will completely miss the life Jesus invites us to experience. Now, in order to fully understand what Jesus was announcing in Matthew 4, we need to take a step back and look at the entire story of the Bible. Because this idea of kingdom was not unique to Jesus. The entire story of Scripture, the activity of God on earth, is rooted in this idea of kingdom. So whether you are just exploring this Jesus stuff or you've walked with him for years, this message is for you. It is vitally important that all of us understand the central theme of not only Jesus' teaching, but the entire Bible. Okay, so let me start with this question. Where in the Bible is the first mention of this concept of kingdom? In fact, let me say it this way. What page is this on? The first mention of the concept of kingdom in the Bible, what page is it on? Page one. Uh, or, or page two, uh, depending on the font size of your Bible. But in, in Genesis chapter one, we see that God creates the heavens and the earth and the crowning jewel of his creation is us, humanity, Adam and Eve, who are created in the image of God. And immediately after being told that they are created in God's image, we read these words, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, this word rule is a Hebrew word that speaks of what kings do. They rule over their kingdom. Now, clearly, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God is king, right? He is creator. He is Lord of all. But as king, he chooses, we see right here, he chooses to share that rulership with his image bearers, you and me, men and women. So from the beginning, from the beginning, we are not just inhabiting this world. We have been entrusted with the responsibility and privilege to co-rule with him, to advance God's loving kingdom rule and reign. That's what the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven means. It, it's not simply talking about some future state in heaven. No, the kingdom of God is any place where God's loving and holy reign is happening. It's wherever God, our creator, is ruling as king. Now, you would think that that would be everywhere, that God rules as king everywhere, but that's not the case. And we see why that's not the case in Genesis chapter 3, just three chapters later. Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, 
Um, Adam and Eve are placed, actually in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden, this beautiful paradise. They have everything they need, physically, emotionally, spiritually. They are joyfully surrendered to God's loving purposes as king. In Genesis 2, they are co-reigning with him, and it is amazing. They are fully living in the reality of the kingdom of God. But in this garden, there is one tree that God commands Adam and Eve to stay away from, to not eat the fruit from, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why did God want them to stay away from that particular tree? Because as a good and holy king, God was the one who defined what is good and evil. God defined what is good and evil. So to partake of that tree, this particular tree would be to say, God, we don't want you to define good and evil. We want to do that ourselves. In other words, we would prefer to be king. So in chapter three, we see Satan in his subtle way deceives Eve into eating of this tree and Adam joins her in this rebellion. And suddenly Adam and Eve unknowingly participate in a hostile takeover. They begin an alternative kingdom a kingdom in which they, not God, determine what is right and wrong. They are defining good and evil based on their own terms. And suddenly there are now two kingdoms rather than one. And these kingdoms are built on polar opposite values. Okay, so in God's kingdom, power is used to serve others, to bless others, to love and affirm and pour into others. This was Adam and Eve's relationship in Genesis 2. There was no shame, no fear, no hiding, no power over each other. They used their ruling power to bless and to serve each other. But once they decided to pursue a different kingdom, the impact was devastating, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. Immediately, they realize they're naked, and so they start hiding from each other. And then, of course, the blame shifting begins when God asks Adam what he's done. Adam says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit. I mean, do you hear the snarkiness, the, the self-preservation? Adam is, is blaming God for giving him Eve. And then, of course, he throws Eve under the bus. It's her fault. Notice how differently Adam is now using his entrusted authority. He's using it to cover his own rear end. He's using it to protect himself no matter who else gets hurt in the process. And then when Eve gets asked by God what happened, she blames the serpent who had intentionally deceived her. Suddenly, God's loving, perfect kingdom has been usurped by another kingdom on earth. And guess who is ruler of this kingdom? Satan. Within a few pages, we begin to see the effects of this other kingdom, jealousy, violence, hatred, murder, the mistreatment of women, the use of sexuality to control and dominate, people being enslaved and oppressed because of their ethnicity or gender. It is not pretty. It is a kingdom based on a power over mentality. In other words, I will use my power to get what I want no matter what, how it impacts anyone else. It's a power over kingdom. 
a power over mentality. So the rest of the Old Testament is this very vivid, often ugly description of humanity pursuing a power over kingdom, where violence and oppression and sexual exploitation, the using of people for self-centered gain, all of that becomes the norm. But here's what is so cool. From the moment Adam and Eve rebelled against God and ushered in this alternative kingdom, from that very moment, God had a plan to restore his original kingdom. This plan started with a guy named Abraham who became the father of the nation of Israel. And God rescued them from slavery and entered into a covenant relationship with them as a way to begin showing the world that there's, hey, there's a different way to live. But the people of Israel, unfortunately, broke that covenant over and over again, resulting in them being subjected to and oppressed by other stronger nations, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. So by the time Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 4, Rome was now the superpower in charge. The Jewish people lived in a militarized zone, being forced to pay heavy taxes to Rome in order to further what Rome referred to as its Pax Romana. Rome saw itself as the savior of the world, using their military strength to bring peace wherever they conquered. So the Jews were an oppressed people. They had no power over Rome. But they were very aware of a promise God had repeatedly given them, that one day a Messiah would come and he would shatter the yoke of oppression. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words around 700 BC, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. See, this was the hope of every Jew as they suffered under Roman rule, that God's kingdom would be reestablished by a Messiah who would be in the lineage of David. Okay, so now let's jump to Matthew chapter 1. How does Matthew begin his account of Jesus' life? With a genealogy. Why did he start with a genealogy? To show that Jesus came from the royal line of David. He's establishing this kingdom lineage. Then in Matthew chapter 2, some magi from the east come to Jerusalem, and they're asking this question, where is the one born king of the Jews? Now Herod, whom Rome had placed as king over the region, totally freaked out when he heard this, and eventually he had every child under the age of two slaughtered to remove any threat to his kingdom. Herod was driven by a power over kingdom in which he used his power to further his own self-centered agenda, no matter what it cost everyone else. Now, thankfully, Mary and Joseph were warned by God um, about Herod's plot, and so they fled to Egypt as refugees. So when Herod finally dies, they return to their homeland, settling in the town of Nazareth, where Jesus grows up, which leads us to Matthew 4, where we're told that Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum and began his ministry. And 
what was the theme of his teaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, Jesus is not proclaiming a new kingdom. Rather, he is declaring that God is reestablishing his kingdom on earth. This is all a part of God's ultimate restoration plan, where the kingdom of this world is overthrown, and God is ruling and reigning on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so after declaring these words, what does Jesus do? What is his first step in advancing this kingdom? Well, look at verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Notice what Jesus is doing. He is inviting these ordinary people, fishermen, to change the world with him. Jesus says, I will make you fishers of people. When we choose to follow Jesus, we once again become co-rulers with God. We become a part of advancing the kingdom of God on earth, which again raises a critically important question. What is the nature of this kingdom that Jesus is announcing and inviting us to embrace? How we answer that question has a huge impact, not only on how we live, but it has an impact on how we engage our culture. Now, before we try and answer that question in our context, I want you to imagine yourself for a moment as a Jewish person living in that time period of Roman oppression. Maybe you're a fisherman or a craft worker, or whatever. Just imagine yourself in that time period, and you hear this carpenter from Nazareth talking about the kingdom of God being near, and he actually invites you to join him in that. So as you're hearing that, what kind of kingdom are you envisioning? What, what kind of kingdom are you hoping for? You have over and over again read in Isaiah 9 about his kingdom having no end and and him being in the line of, of David. And so you're thinking, this is it. A Messiah has come who will finally overthrow the Roman government. I mean, that's what the Jews were longing for. And they had promises from God to back it up. The problem is they were looking at these promises through their own kingdom lens, a power over kingdom lens. In other words, they're thinking all we need to do is get into power, and then we can establish God's kingdom here on earth. See, this was the paradigm through which the Jewish people understood the kingdom. And because of that, many of them missed the kingdom. And I would just add that the history of Christianity is filled with example after example of sincere followers of Jesus making the exact same mistake. The Crusades were just one of many horrible examples the kingdom that Jesus was announcing was unlike any kingdom the Jewish people had ever imagined. I mean, every kingdom they had experienced up to that point was about power over, right? Gaining control and influence through military power or political power. And, that, and that's what they, 
they, they, they fully hoped and expected Jesus to do. But that's not the kind of kingdom Jesus was ushering in. So it's no surprise that Jesus then takes some time, because this kingdom is so different, it's no surprise that he takes some time to explain in detail the nature of his kingdom. So in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus describes in vivid detail what it looks like to be people of the kingdom of God. And most everything he says in these chapters is completely counterintuitive to the way we think and the way we live. In these three chapters, we see that the kind of kingdom Jesus was ushering in was not a power over kingdom, but rather was a power under kingdom. A kingdom where if a Roman soldier whom you hated commanded you to carry their pack a mile, you are to volunteer voluntarily carry it two miles. A kingdom where mercy triumphs over judgment. Where, where instead of hating our enemies, we are urged to love them and look for ways to bless them. In this kingdom description in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus will say things like, Blessed are you if you're poor and powerless because the kingdom of God is yours. <laughs> Blessings on you if because of your faith in me you are persecuted by people in power because your reward will be amazing. It is a totally upside down kingdom, one that no one could have dreamed up except someone like Jesus, who is the exact representation of God the King. I mean, no one else could pull this off. If someone were to come up to you and say, hey, follow me, and I'm going to tell you how to live, you'd be like, get out of my face. You're not the boss of me. But Jesus is the boss of us. We have said yes to following him because of how incredible he is. So the critical question for us to begin wrestling with as we're going about our daily lives is this, which kingdom am I choosing to live under? Which kingdom am I embracing? A kingdom where I am deciding what is good and evil and I only pursue the things that feel good to me, things that enable me to control and judge other people, or am I choosing to more and more live according to the kingdom that Jesus announced? Letting him determine what is good and evil. Letting him determine the values that I'm living by. This is the journey that we're beginning today in this new teaching series. We're going to walk through Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and learn from Jesus what it looks like to live as people of his kingdom. Now, let me just warn us. Some of what Jesus says in this portion of Scripture is probably going to make us angry at times. He's going to talk about our money. He's going to talk about our sexuality. He's going to talk about our attitude toward other people, our quest for power, how we respond when people hurt us. In fact, I would say if we are not offended, if we're not, if we're not offended by something, some of the things that Jesus says in these chapters— I'm not sure we're truly grappling with the kingdom that Jesus is calling us to pursue because it is the polar opposite of the kingdom of the world. In fact, I want to go back to the first word out of Jesus' mouth when he begins announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. Look, look again at what he says. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Notice he doesn't say 
hey, just keep going on the path you're on. You're doing great. The kingdom of God is here and it perfectly aligns with how you're already living. That would have been awesome, right? That would have been nice, I should say. But he didn't say that. He didn't say that. What he said was, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. The word repent means to turn. It is. It means to change our thinking and the trajectory of our lives. Now, this word includes anyone coming to Christ for the first time, but it also includes those of us who have walked with Jesus for years and have maybe started to think that we've kind of got all this figured out. There's nothing more to learn or be challenged by. We've kind of got this whole Christian thing figured out. Jesus is inviting all of us to look afresh at how we are living in comparison to the kingdom Jesus describes. And in that situation, in that moment, in that situation at work, in that difficult relationship, to choose to align our heart with his kingdom, this counterintuitive, upside-down, power-under-kingdom that Jesus is describing. These choices may not seem like that big of a deal, but the impact over time is staggering. At the end of this this three-chapter-long sermon, right at the end of chapter 7, Jesus vividly describes the person who actually puts his words into practice. He says that they're like someone who built their house on a foundation of rock rather than sand. So when the winds blew, the winds of life blew, and the storms beat against that house, it stood firm. That's a picture of what happens as we choose over time to live according to Jesus' kingdom. It is a picture of stability, of quiet strength, of rootedness, finding our life in him rather than in things or circumstances. Jesus invites us on a journey to learn from him how to live according to his kingdom. And that journey involves experiencing life in him. It's not the easiest path, but it is the most life-giving one because we're following our king, Jesus. So are you willing to journey together these next few months as we explore and wrestle with and seek to increasingly align our lives with the kingdom Jesus describes in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Jesus says the kingdom of God is near to us. What an amazing invitation to embrace. Let's pray together. So as we quiet our hearts, wherever you're watching this, I want to encourage you just to quiet your heart for a moment. And let's just ask the Holy Spirit, would you speak to us right now? What are you wanting to put your finger on in our lives? So in this moment of quietness, I want to, I want to encourage you to think about a, a, a specific situation in your life. Maybe work or family or a particular relationship or something going on in your life. And as you think about that situation, 
maybe it's something you have been thinking a lot about. It's been on your mind a lot. So I want, as you're thinking about this situation, I want you to think about this question. Which kingdom are you finding yourself drawn to? A power over kingdom? Striving to control, to win, to determine for yourself what's right or wrong? And if, if, if so, if that's the kingdom you're being drawn to, you're, you're acting out of, if that's the kingdom, what impact is that having on you or on your relationships? Just think about that prayerfully. Maybe just confess, take a moment and confess to the Lord that that is happening. Maybe it's an opportunity to repent in that particular situation. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry for the kingdom I've been pursuing in this particular context. And now what would it look like for you to say to Jesus, I want to follow your kingdom in this situation? Jesus, would you show me what it would look like, it looks like in this situation to follow your kingdom? God, you've heard the cry of our heart. We want to follow your kingdom. We know it's not going to be easy. We know it's challenging, but we want to follow you as king. And so I thank you, Lord, for the nearness of your kingdom, the transformative power of your kingdom, the countercultural nature of your kingdom. And this promise that when we live our lives according to your kingdom, it's like building our lives on a solid foundation. So I thank you for that promise. And I pray, we pray that you would help all of us over the next few months learn more and more about your kingdom and how to live more and more in line with your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. We honor you as king. And we long to follow you with all of our being. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and praise you.